This morning, uh, we are going to start a mini-series, and uh, we're taking kind of a break from Church Without Walls. What we're going to be doing over the next four weeks is preaching about four of the urban churches mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, You can see from the graphic the churches that we'll cover, Uh, and what we hope to do is... uh, point to some of the, um, the distinctions, the distinctives of these cities and the churches that are started in these cities. Uh, most, all of these churches are actually um, churches that Paul influenced or shaped or launched. And so what we're going to do is pull out of um, Acts in a way, uh, or push, pushing, being pushed from Acts to go to these cities uh, today, Philippi, uh, and the weeks following, uh, David and Sandra and Michelle will be preaching uh, the cities that you see here. And our hope and our expectation and our prayer is that we'll be able to see how the gospel took root in these communities and how um, the gospel, because of what it has done in those ancient cities and churches, will take shape in our lives. We'll be looking at the Apostle Paul's letters quite a bit in different ways. Um, and uh, as, as normal, uh, this week in preparation for the sermon, uh, one of the people I work with, I won't tell you her name is Angela Zerk, she harasses me all the time when I'm preaching and asks me for a sermon title and text. And, you know, I always go beyond the deadline because I don't do well with sermon titles. And uh, uh, so, so this week... You can make up your own sermon title and uh, post it on her Facebook page and, uh, or on the church's uh, Facebook page, and uh, we'll go from there. But we're dealing with uh, a lot of Paul's letters over the next few weeks, and when you look at Paul's epistles, what you'll notice is a pattern. He generally does at least two things in the letters. He generally teaches and he encourages the church or the Christians, his readers or his listeners, to embrace those teachings. So he, he teaches, uh, he gives instruction uh, on doctrine, and doctrine is the church word for the teaching on a particular matter, and then he gives the church ways to live out that doctrine. And so he will teach, for example, as we'll see in Philippians, about Christology or the person of Jesus Christ. Christ, and then he will, he will say things about uh, embodying what that doctrine means, so that if Jesus is perfectly God and perfectly man, then we should have the same mind that Christ has, and we'll see how that looks in the book of Philippians and for that particular church. But he will, in general, teach and he will exhort, he will educate, and he will encourage the church to live out uh, what he's teaching. And so this morning, the city is Philippi, the church is uh, the Philippian church, and uh, Philippi was originally called Crenides, and I don't know if that's the exact pronunciation, but since I have the mic, I'll say it's Crenides, and, 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 and Crenides was established, and Philip of Macedonia um, fortified the city and changed the city's name, changed the city's name after him, a very humble fellow he was, and so he changed the city's name, and, uh, and later on, the Augustus, uh, the Emperor Augustus, Uh, turned the city into a Roman colony. Uh, That means that uh, Rome went into the city, took over the city, and set up a military 
post or station or settlement. And so uh, Philippi became a Roman colony, and it was not just any kind of Roman colony. It was a Roman colony to the extreme. It was Rome's most beautiful colony, if you will, because Philippi became a mini Rome. It became a little Rome. And what, what scholars mean by that is the Roman government set up a military presence and the people of Philippi so conformed themselves to the governing power that they became a, a mirror of that power. The colonial power of Rome was so great that the people of Philippi imitated Rome. The city was um, super patriotic. They were probably very anti-Semitic. And this was the city of Philippi. Insert Jesus Christ. The apostolic church, men like Paul and Silas. And we move to the church in Philippi. Now, the church in Philippi uh, was called by, by some, some scholars um, the, 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 the model of um, the, the early church, the model for the European church. Uh, when Paul and Silas moved when, when, in, in Acts 16, and, and we won't really go there because when we get back to church without walls, we'll move through Acts, uh, the latter part of 15 and 16, and get to, to talk about this in particular. But when Paul and Silas go to Philippi, they are moving for the first time in Europe. And, and they are taking the gospel to this European area in what's called Macedonia at the time, and they're preaching the gospel. If you followed any part of the Acts sermon series, you know that, that the, what the church is doing is they're taking the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and moving to the uttermost parts of the world. They're scattering abroad. And so Silas and Paul and their team are scattering, and we see them in Crenides or Philippi or Europe. Europe, taking the gospel for the first time to this area. And the church there becomes a model. And what I want to do is point to a couple of reasons, a couple of things in the letter to Philippians that, that allows the church to become this model because you will notice, and I, and I want to encourage you uh, to take 15, maybe 20 minutes if you read slow, to read through Philippians. It's, it's a really quick book, four chapters. You can do it really five minutes a chapter, 20 minutes top. So some point this week, read this and allow maybe this sermon to provide a framework for you because what happens in Philippians is that the church has a model and then the church which has a model becomes a model. Paul goes through and he talks about maybe four or five things in this letter uh, to the Philippian church and I, and I want to just uh, uh, run past them and then get to a couple of emphases and then sit down. So one of the things that, that, that Philippians uh, talks about, it, when you read it, you'll get this strong impression of Paul's feelings and his sentiments about the Philippians' gift to him. They give him a gift, they provide him money, and, and Paul is so grateful and so thankful that a lot of the letter is spent talking about how he feels about their gift. And he's, he's spending the earlier part of Philippians chapter 1 and threading through the letter, thanking them for what they have given. 
So when you look at Philippians chapter one, part of the backdrop is Paul's gratitude and his thankfulness for the gift of their support. So in Philippians chapter one, he opens the letter with a kind of prayer that that exposes us to his heart. And uh, let's look at that prayer and read this together. It's Philippians uh, chapter one, verses three through 11. I'm going to ask that you read this. I'm going to drop out because I have more things to say, but you read it. You read it. Read it up here. Let's go. I thank my God. Is that it? No. <laughs> For God is my witness. The Philippians uh, provide Paul with a gift and he's, he's praying for them because he's thankful. And you hear what he's saying in this prayer. Paul is a missionary and we have, we have several missionaries in our church. Some of you know Sandra, Max, Andy, uh, Anthony and, um, and, 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 and those missionaries in our church are supported financially like Paul was supported financially um, by the Philippian church. And so they have provided for his expenses while he does ministry and Paul writes back to them and, and, and we get to see his heart and that's one of the major chunks in the book of Philippians. Another sort of second chunk that Paul goes through is he explores who the person of Jesus Christ is. And in chapter two in Philippians, we get to see how the church should understand Understand uh, the Savior's divine and human natures. And Paul goes through in chapter 2 and explains what it means for Jesus to be both God and human. And the entire letter hangs on this doctrine. All of Philippians, what he says in 1, what he says in 3, what he says in 4, uh, finds its, its center in the person of Jesus Christ, in the saving power of Jesus Christ as both God and man. If Jesus does not embody both these natures completely and fully, if Jesus is not both human and divine, we cannot aspire to any righteousness that Paul talks about in this letter. If Jesus is not divine, perfectly God and perfectly human, then there is no hope for us who are only human to approach the divine. So in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 12, we have this text. Let's read this together. Let the same mind be in you that was, all, that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient 
to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. Keep reading. Therefore, my beloved, come on, just as you. Paul talks about the Savior, and I can't get stuck in this passage because it has its own integrity, and I really want to just survey these three or four moves. But Paul talks in this passage about Jesus who, is, who is, is so highly exalted that he is Lord. And at the same time, so incarnational that Paul uses the term slave. And, and what's happening here is Jesus does not empty divinity. Jesus does not lose divinity. What Jesus does and what Paul tries to explain is that the Savior takes upon himself the human experience. Jesus becomes human while he is divine and he provides something that none of us can ever fathom to provide and that is sinless humanity. And out of that provision, Jesus becomes our righteousness. And this is the third sort of move in Philippians where Paul defines righteousness from God based upon faith. Over and over in Philippians, Paul admonishes his readers to live in a way that says that Jesus is Lord. Again and again, you will see these reminders. And this is how Paul says it, a couple of verses. Uh, Chapter two, verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Two and five. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 and 14, do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. The next verse, Philippians 3, 17. Brothers and sisters, join me in imitating, uh, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Now what Paul is doing is he is explaining to the church in Philippi what righteousness looks like. So it looks like being humble. It looks like not murmuring or arguing. It looks like allowing the same mind in Christ to be in you. It looks like imitating Paul as they observe the example that they have in him. Essentially, what Paul is giving in Philippians is a to-do list. And, And this gets a little sticky, but I have to say that Paul is saying to the church, live this way and not that way. Paul is giving the church instructions on what it looks like to live as if you are called by Christ. And I've got to say this to you because it needs to be said, and that is, if you read scripture, scripture will tell you what not to do. If you read scripture, you will get instruction for your life. One of my teachers used to talk about the Bible, and he used to say that the Bible will destroy your life. 
And in some way, at some point, when you approach God, that is exactly what Christ is about. Destroying the life that you have. And Paul is saying, let the same mind that Christ has be in you. But what he founds this to-do list on is not the ability of his reader. It's not our ability that Paul expresses we should engage in. He says that our righteousness is from God. Paul anchors these righteous acts in God's work. Now, this is how he says it in Philippians in 2 and 13. He says, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says in 3 and 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. And finally, in 4 and 9, Philippians 4 and 9, he says, keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is, Paul is certainly giving the church instruction. He's certainly pointing to a life that looks like Christ. He is pointing to it, but he is pointing to it after he lays a foundation that says, you have to live this way, but you cannot live this way in your own strength and power. You live this way because Christ makes righteousness possible. That's a third move in Philippians. And the fourth movement in Uh, This book, after he talks about how our righteousness and our rightness comes from Christ and not ourselves, after he says that if we're going to have the same mind that Jesus has, Jesus has to give it to us, after he says that, he talks about the Philippian church being citizens of a heavenly district. Now, uh, we'll come to uh, this verse that you see here, 3 and 20 and 21. Paul reminds the people of God that their citizenship is heavenly. And this, this passage is one of the bedrock pieces in the New Testament where we get the language of uh, being a city or being a part of a citizenry or being a part of a commonwealth. And, and, and when Paul uses this term in 3 and 20, citizenship in heaven, he's talking about a commonwealth. Let's look at these verses together. uh, 3, 20, and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. This, this language, when Paul talks about our citizenship, uh, the, the Greek word there is, uh, the, 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 for, uh, the, the word that we get, the English uh, word commonwealth. And commonwealth is a very important word for this Roman colony in Philippi. This is the language of the city. This is the language of the people in Philippi. The language of citizenship or commonwealth is exactly what they understand in relation to their connection to the Roman government. 
So, so they are a part in some ways of the Roman commonwealth. And so when Paul brings this language in 3 and 20, he is, he's not looking beyond the, the, the Roman uh, um, settlement. He is actually adding perspective to it. He is saying that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are part not just of a Roman commonwealth. He goes through his own Roman citizenship in this same chapter. And he says that we are a part of a heavenly commonwealth. Remember that this is Philippi. This is mini Rome. They're extremely patriotic. This is Philippi. There's the little Rome. And, and you know about little mini things. They have to overdo. So, so they're overdoing their Romanness. And he's saying to them, your commonwealth is heavenly. You belong to a heavenly city. He doesn't separate where they live from this, though. He says to them, embody this truth in Philippi. In other words, as we look at the problems and challenges in the city that we face, we look at them, we do so knowing who Jesus is. We do so knowing that our righteousness comes from God. We do so knowing that God has equipped us to intersect with the city. This gets me to the first of two emphases. Um, as Paul talks about the citizenship that the Philippians have, he's saying that their citizenship is in heaven. He's talking to them about identity. And, and remember that this is Philippi where uh, the church is used to political maneuvering. They're used to the Roman government providing leaders. They're used to a very racist climate. They're used to a very anti-Semitic climate. They're used to poverty. And Paul is coming and he's saying that, that, that there is something uh, about this, this citizenship in heaven that relates to our body of humiliation. Now, there's some things we can assume if the city... Uh, the church in Philippi is living out the call that Paul is calling them to or that, God, that he's embracing and challenging them to. And the question, the question for us is does the church in Philippi live in a way that offers its city an alternative to the earthly citizenship, to the Roman citizenship? And Paul is pushing this idea of being in and around and a part of this heavenly commonwealth. Now, now how does this connect uh, to us? I, I, I shouldn't pretend to know, but I want to suggest that one of the ways it may connect to us as we live here in Chicago, or uh, for those of you who don't live in Chicago, wherever you live, is this idea in 3 and 20 and 21 of humiliation. Say that word, say humiliation. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. Now, humiliation is not suffering exactly. If it is, it's kind of psychic suffering. It's, it's, humiliation relates to our pride and ego. And it is, it is basically the smashing of of our 
self-understanding, your, your self-concept. It's, it's how you understand yourself. and um, You look at yourself based upon how everybody in your life in one way or another has suggested you should. People hold up mirrors all your life, um, your family, your friends, and they tell you, this is you, this is you, uh, this is the person that you are. And we develop an understanding of who we are when we interact with the important influences in our lives, however, however right they are. And, and, and when, when Paul comes and talks about humiliation, I think, I think for us, as we grapple with this, it connects to this issue of pride and, and self-understanding. And I think one way to embrace this truth that our commonwealth is not earthy, but it is heavenly, is to have the tiny shards of pride where large monuments once were. What do I mean by that? I, I, uh, I'm getting more into history in our city, and uh, this might be a news flash, but, but I've noticed that there used to be buildings in my neighborhood that are not there anymore. And, and if, if there are remnants of those buildings, they are in little bitty ground pieces on the ground or somewhere in a landfill or maybe if you live in Crestwood in the water, Lord have mercy, uh, don't drink the water in Crestwood. Um, there used to be these buildings. It's the south suburb uh, for those of you. Used to be these buildings and now they're demolished. Now they're gone and they're just small pieces and, and vacant lots in some of our neighborhoods and some of our communities. And I think that provides for us a picture of what humiliation looks like when it comes to our soul, when it comes to our insides, when it comes to who you think you are. I want to suggest to you that living like your citizenship is heavenly, living like the mind of Christ is in you, will look like humiliation and the large monuments that you and I have set up in our lives now just being smaller pieces and fragments. For those of you who might want to try to say, well, what does it look like one step at a time? It looks like you waking up in the morning and in your own way telling yourself, telling your God, speaking to God and saying, this is a large monument in my life. Loosen one of the bricks. I have built my existence on this thing, this relationship, this idea, and it's not true. But it's too big for me to undo. Would you loosen the foundation just a bit? That's what humiliation is. It's not, it's not necessarily the crane and the bulldozer knocking down the building in your life, knocking down all of your identity at one time. Sometimes it is simply unscrewing the windows, unlatching the windows. Sometimes it's taking the hinge off the door. Sometimes it's taking a hammer and knocking at one of the bricks. Sometimes humiliation looks like Christ telling you in his own way that you are not what your past has said you are. But all I do is abuse the same substance. That's all my foundation is built upon. I am that. And God comes along, the righteousness of Christ comes along and says, I have provided a way for you to know who you truly are. All I know, all I know is getting in relationships that never do me any good. And so why should I do anything different? Christ says, in one way or another, 
That your ability to be like me comes from me. So tear down that monument one day at a time. Humiliation. Humiliation with a view toward identity. And Paul, Paul talks in this letter about um, conflict. And, and when you read it, and some of you will, we get to chapter 4. He begins to talk about some kind of conflict that he's hinting at. And, and, and um, if, if, if you're ever going to get through a conflict, and some of you, um, some of you know this because you're, you're living through it or you've lived through it recently, uh, somebody's going to be humiliated in a way. Somebody has to, has to uh, diminish their investment in their truth, right? Uh, somebody has to admit that they're wrong. Somebody has to admit that I might not be wrong, but it doesn't mean this big of a deal. You know, it's not. And, and Paul is getting in chapter 4 to this. He talks about division. He talks about unity. And in chapter 4, he's talking to two female leaders in particular, encouraging them to get on the same page and to be on the same mind. And he says this language. He says, agree in the Lord. And I interpret this to mean that, that we should face conflict. We should we should fight when we need to. We should, we should disagree when we must. But at some point, one of you has to say to me, or I have to say to you, uh, Michael, you know, you might be right. But it's not worth it. Because you're my brother. That's what Paul means by agreeing in the Lord. And if you say that to me, that's humiliating. That's an example of, of living like Whatever this is about doesn't matter as much as the unity that we have in Christ. If we're going to be the church that pursues serving the way Jesus did, if we're going to live as if our commonwealth is not of this world alone, that will mean humiliation. That will mean death. And death is colossal inconvenience and that's the example that we have in Christ identity and the second thing that I want to sort of park at in um, Paul's letter is this idea of generosity while I was looking uh, into the book of Philippians listening to what other people say about the letter, I came across a writer who claimed that an outstanding feature of this letter will always be Paul's uh, attitude toward his sufferings. He was, this writer said, able to rejoice by God's grace regardless of his circumstances. And Paul's circumstances were bad. Paul uh, was beat. Um, He uh, was imprisoned. He was ignored, which for any evangelist is the worst of all things. We hear a lot about Paul's personal feelings in this letter, as we talked about. He's, he's thankful that the Philippian church is given. He's talking a lot uh, from his own experience. But I choose to believe that Paul's feelings are, don't, don't just tell us about him, but they tell us about his readers. They tell us about the Philippians. And one of the things that I think they tell us is that the Philippians were extremely generous. 
Paul suffered, uh, but so did the Philippians. And one of the ways uh, that they suffered is by being poor. Now, being poor does not equate uh, suffering, but if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about this church. And he defines for us that their poverty was, was, was actually suffering. He says in the second verse, he's talking about the grace of God being given uh, to these Christians. And he says in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2, For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Every time I heard uh, Philippians, especially Philippians 4 preached growing up, it was always sort of the preacher's way of getting people to give money in church. Um, but it was never, never talked about as if the Philippians were broke. And the Philippians were not in the best of shape, and, and yet they supported Paul. And it's remarkable that these converts, as a class, were poor, but that their poverty is coupled with generosity. These good people were ostracized in the city. Remember, everybody in little Rome is suspicious of you if you don't give your loyalty and allegiance to uh, the emperor. And here they are um, reading this letter from Paul. Here they are meeting in church. Here they are. Um, they're female leaders in their church. Here they are. They're trying to pursue Christ in new and innovative ways. And they're suspect. And, and if you know anything about business, and I don't know much, but network affects income. And in Philippi, they didn't have a really healthy network because they were ostracized. And, and they don't pinch their pennies. They don't tighten, uh, hold tightly to their dollars. Though they didn't have dollars, they had coins. They give until Paul says that their giving is unparalleled. He says, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. And I think that these beloved people uh, uh, don't allow, in, in, in a way that, that is really hard for me to wrap my head around, they don't allow their economic status or where they are in the community to prevent them from being Christian. And in their context, being Christian means being generous. <clears throat> when I was growing up... Um, I didn't know that we were broke and poor. And I, I suppose I had to go to seminary and university to learn those labels. And um, my mother raised three of us, single mother. And uh, although, although my dad was very, very present and helpful, she was still technically very single, and we were still pretty poor. And I, part of the reason why Part of the reason why I didn't call us poor is because she didn't, but part of the reason why I, it wouldn't have occurred to me that our family was poor is because I saw these very strong images of generosity. I mean, I remember several times in our house moving out of my room because 
people didn't have a place to stay and they would live with us. Poor people don't do that. You know, you don't have space for that. You don't have food for that. And, and, in, and in my mother's own way and in her exemplary way, her social status did not prevent her from living this value of generosity. Angelo, Miss Barbara, these folks coming into our house, don't have anywhere to go, moving stuff in. And me and my 12-year-old, 14-year-old self, why well, I got to move out of my room? Why I got to go back up and live in a room with my brother? Because, because my mother was generous, and I think that the Philippian church is doing something like that in their own time. And I think we have to wrap our heads around it today for our church, for our individual lives. And it may not look like the Philippians, but the question is, how does it look for us to have our identity in this heavenly commonwealth? And how does it look for us to be a generous people regardless of what is around us? In, in Philippians 4 and 18, he says, I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And may God fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians supported Paul's mission. They, they met Paul's needs. He even says that he robbed another church. When he's talking in Corinthians, he says to the Corinthians, I robbed another church so that I could minister to you. And the church he robbed is Philippi. Strong language. I think one of the things this means for us, and I want to encourage some of you to do this, is, is that you need to find a model of generosity. And I, I've got a few models in this church um, personally. And I think you need to find examples of people who are generous. And, and I don't mean um, generous in, in, in any particular way, but, but for me, it, it looks like hanging around people who know how to give uh, compliments, who certainly know how to give time. That's why I spend time with ministry team leaders who don't complain about serving. I mean, you know, it gets hard, but they serve. They, I mean, they're generous people. I don't, I don't really need to hang around people who are nasty and stingy. I know, I know all of that really well. So I have to hang around people who are extremely giving. And I think that we need to find people in our church. We need to find in one another, in our community, people who we can look at and say, you have the same mind that Jesus does. It's because you're generous. That, that, that is a part of the mind of Christ. And I, I need to learn that. Finally, I think Paul's words. I think he pushes us to consider 
whether we're generous. I think he pushes us to listen to, uh, to God's voice rather than that voice in our heads that says you have to hold what you have because you know, you're not going to get anything else or because you know, it's yours. I think, I think Paul and the Philippians would counsel us to find in God the ability to be generous, the ability to find our identity in Christ. And Paul goes back and forth in this letter. On the one hand, he's grateful. On the other hand, he says, I didn't need what you gave. One, on the one hand, he's saying, thanks for providing for my needs. And in the, in the same chapter, he's saying, you know, I didn't ask you for this. You didn't have to do this. And, and I don't know why Paul did that, but I choose to think that one of the ways one of the reasons, we, uh, one of the ways, rather, we can apply kind of his back and forth movement is, is to be okay with having things and to be content with not having things. I think that's important for us where our country is, where Chicago is, where the budget is in our city. I think, I think we can find a way by God's help to look, uh, to look at our lives and say, if I have Mm, okay, if I don't, okay, because my identity, my substance, who I am does not come from my checkbook or my pocketbook, but it comes from Christ and what Christ says about me. So church, I think that's a part of Paul's counsel to the church in Philippi. And part of his counsel to us, a church in Chicago, a church trying to be um, Christian, having the mind of Christ. And, and as, we, as we close, I, I'm going to ask you to, to pray a prayer in the form of a song. It's just, y'all can come on up, but it's just... Um, and Grace, can you give me just keys with this? Just keys. I didn't plan this, so if it doesn't work, it's okay. Pray this. Jesus, you are my king. Come on. Jesus, you are my Sing it. Jesus, you Jesus, you are my. Come on, sing. Amazing love. If you know it, just sing it. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love. I know it's true. Amazing love. It's my joy to honor you. It's my joy to honor you in all I do. In all I do. I I want you to think about the character that you have and the relation you have to uh, whoever your Rome is, whatever monument you have in your life. And I want us to sing that one more time with the monuments in our lives in view. So get in your mind what it is you've put your identity on. And for some of you, this this is a step of stretching and faith. But would you sing in response to that monument in your life that Jesus is your king? that it's your joy.
to honor him. Let's just say amazing love. Come on, amazing love. Amazing love. Sing, church. That you, my king, would die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. Amazing love, I know it's true. Sing it by faith. It's my joy to honor you. On you in all I do, in all I do, high on in all I do, in all I do, high on you. I'm gonna pray, and our worship team, Jillian's gonna lead us in our final song. So I'm gonna pray a prayer of benediction. And, uh, and we're going to sing together about the character of God in a way that, that, is, that is celebratory. But before I pray, I want to just leave you with, with half, a, half a minute to, to pray in your own way, to, to think about that song, to think about Jesus, to think about your citizenship, what commonwealth you belong to, and consider what God is saying to you. Take a moment. Dear God, if we haven't said today that we need you to live like you choose for us to live, let us say, we, we're saying it now, we can't be righteous without you. We, we can't build our lives upon the truth that you communicate or say to us without your help. And so for some of us, for some of us, honestly, it is not a joy to honor you. Make it so. You have, you have the hardest job here, God, not us. You have the job of conforming us in the body of our humiliation to the image of your son, a glorious image. So, so do what you do. Do your work. Do the hard work on your end of changing us and making us your people whether that means being generous, whether that means being, being different, whether that means being loving, do your work throughout this week in our lives. Bring us into contact with situations, with people that make us question why we've built our identity on the things that we have and then remind us that you offer us something different, something better, something more beautiful. Do this. In the name of Jesus, we pray.